Today's reading comes from Galatians chapter two. And we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church and happy fourth anniversary. This is our fourth anniversary as a church. People have been asking me, can you believe it's been four years? And I always say, yes. It has felt like at least... 200 Sundays, not because it hasn't been wonderful, you know, no offense, it's been, it's been great. Um, but if you remember, if you were here in that first year, I mean, it was like 30 adults and 40 kids. And then we had COVID. I mean, we, we've met in three different places in the last four years. We met online for COVID. It was like, we're back, but we're social distancing. Can we open kids? Can we not? Are we doing masks? Are we not? Do we recommend them? Do we require them? Uh, we've had challenges on our leadership team. We've had spiritual warfare. And yet the most consistent thing has been the goodness and grace of God. And so it's been a wild four years. It's been a blast. Uh, I was 34 when we started. I'm now in my 60s, <laughs> but it's been, it's been great. And uh, hopefully by now, uh, any, if you've been at Trinity any amount of time, you've, you've seen that celebration is one of our, our core values of, as a church. I mean, we celebrate communion every Sunday. We have these big celebration dinners twice a year. We celebrate baptisms, we celebrate new members, we celebrate new leaders and new groups. We're constantly trying to celebrate what God's doing in our midst. And the reason for that is because the Old Testament is full of these commandments, like real commandments to celebrate. I mean, if you look at, at the Israelites' calendar, you have so many festivals and feasts. You have Passover, the unleavened bread, the first fruits, Pentecost, festival of trumpets, feast of tabernacles, day of atonement, plus new moon feasts, Sabbath year feasts, jubilee feasts. When you add all of this up and you include the weekly Sabbath in the Israelites calendar, they had between 100 and 120 days of celebration a year. I mean, just trying to think through the economics of that and how they planned for that much celebration, especially that 50th year, the year of Jubilee, that was just straight celebration all year long, all the debts are canceled. I mean, it's just remarkable. And then when we look forward into the new creation, we see that the central hope of Christianity, it's not us dying and, and going to heaven and living a sort of disembodied life in the clouds, but Rather, it's, it's a physical, resurrected, embodied eternity 
where we are with God in a new city, a new heavens and a new earth, eating and drinking. And that's why so many of Jesus' parables describe salvation as a feast or a wedding banquet. The very last verse in our passage this morning says, do not set aside the grace of God. Meaning, meaning don't, don't miss it or don't move past it or don't fail to celebrate it. Don't set it off to the side in your pursuit of other things, but rather as chapter one, verse six says, live in the grace of Christ. So often we, we move past the grace of God. We have these, these unsearchable riches, as Ephesians 3 puts it. We have unsearchable riches in Christ. And yet too often we, we forget it or we live almost like orphans or, or beggars, despite this great spiritual wealth. Maybe you've heard the story of a, a woman named Hetty Green. Uh, in the early 20th century, Hetty Green died and left behind a fortune. And in today's money, it would be somewhere between four and five billion dollars. So not million, billion. She was the richest woman on earth at that time. But what she's most known for is being an incredible miser, like would not spend any money. And so uh, it says that she, uh, her, her family never used heat or hot water in the house. She only owned one pair of clothing. And when her son broke his leg, she refused to pay to take him to the hospital. And years later, he had to have it amputated. So in the Guinness Book of World Records, it has greatest miser in history. This is true, and it's Hetty Green. And so for us, celebration is a way to not be like spiritual Hetty Greens, you know? To not have all these, these incredible riches and yet fail to actually live like it. Celebration is a, is a way, and just living in the grace of Christ is a way for us to, to remember and to, to share and to celebrate the grace that we have in God. The late author Robert F. Capon put it like this, grace is the celebration of life, relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. It's a floating cosmic bash, shouting its ways through the streets of the universe, pounding at every door in a hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance and the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. And celebration is the only proper response to the grace of God. In Galatians, this book we've been studying for the last five weeks, it's all about the grace that comes to us in the gospel. The gospel is that message of good news, the core message and the core power of Christianity. It's God's grace. We have not earned salvation, but it's been given to us. And today we're only really going to focus in on one verse. It's verse 20. I believe it's the central verse in all of Galatians. It's no coincidence that we're doing this on our anniversary Sunday. I wanted us to really focus in on this one verse. It's verse 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so to live in the grace of Christ means three things are true of us. First, we are crucified with Christ. Second, we are alive in Christ. And third, we are loved by Christ. And so first, let's look at how and what it means that we are crucified with Christ. And I actually want to back back up to verse 16, where we started our reading, and we looked at it last week as well. But it says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so to justify is to declare someone good and righteous and free of penalty. And yet Paul's not just teaching a class on systematic theology. This is not like a disconnected set of information that he's, he's conveying. Instead, this, this whole thing that we're reading, verses 16 to 21, through the end of our passage, if you remember from last week, it's, it's his summary of a conversation that he had with Peter. Paul had, had gone to Jerusalem to get some, you know, apostle hang time, you know, even apostles are, you know, bros too. And so they're hanging out. But he, Paul realizes that Peter, the, the head of the church, is no longer eating with non-Jews. He's not eating with Gentiles. In fact, he's gone back to his old way of life where he's, he's only eating with people in his own social and ethnic tribe. And for Paul, this is not just rudeness or inhospitality. It's a direct opposition to the gospel. And the reason is that the gospel says, come all, right? Come all who are thirsty. Come all who are hungry. Come Jew and Gentile. Come tax collector, Pharisee, prostitute. Come all to the table and eat. And so for Peter to be exclusive of people that he's, he's eating or not eating with based on their ethnicity and their social group, it's actually in direct opposition, opposition to the gospel. Paul calls it hypocrisy. He's believing one thing, but not living in line with it. That's the phrase that Paul uses. He's not living in line with the truth of the gospel. And so it's into this context, this disunity that Paul clarifies the good news that we have. And he uses this phrase that we're justified by faith. And it's why Martin Luther said a long time ago, most of your Christian life is, is outside of you. Meaning the most important thing about your spiritual life is not what you do or what you've done, but rather what somebody else has done for you, what Christ has done for you on the cross. You have been justified, and all we do, our, our only role in this is believing and receiving. And so this becomes the foundation for all unity and oneness in the church. And then it's after this, this great truth of justification by faith that, that Paul now is going to internalize, personalize the gospel. So I don't know if you notice, there's, there's a change in pronouns. He goes from saying we and you to saying I. Verse 19, for I died to the law so that I might live for God. And what Paul is saying here is that he has died through the law or, or under the law, that the law can only condemn us, it can't ever save us. It can only show us where we fall short, it can't raise us up. It can only show us that we're not justified, it can't actually justify us. And so Paul's looking at the law and saying, despite all of my goodness, despite being a Pharisee of Pharisees, all of my law keeping, I'm not justified before God because of that. Instead, I'm, I'm dead because of that. And yet now I can live for God. So all of his religiousness beforehand, I mean, all of his study in the Old Testament and all of those years, all of his goodness, all of his going to the temple and doing all of the sacrifices, he's admitting that that was not really for God. That, that was for himself. That was for his own 
accomplishments, his own status. He's saying, now I might live for God. And all this is building to our verse, verse 20. And he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now it's past tense. He's saying, I have been crucified with Christ. This is something that is happened. It's, it's definitively true. It's changed who I am. So Paul is saying, I, I am a, I'm a dead man in the best way possible. He's not setting aside his old way of life. He's not hanging it up in the closet and he might, you know, go, go check on it every now and then, try it on when nobody's looking. He's, he's burying his old life. He's saying, this is what's true is that my old life has been buried. And so if you stop and think about that for a moment, all of your, your worst moments, your, your biggest outbursts, your, your darkest secrets, the things that you most want to forget about but keep rising to the surface, all of that is dead and buried with Christ. Like that doesn't get raised from the grave. That gets crucified and left in the ground. At the same time, though, that's true of all of your best moments, all of your, your spiritual performance, all of the things that make you feel like a good and a moral person, all of that is dead and buried crucified with Christ as well. Both your worst moments and your greatest accomplishments have been buried with Christ. And we often find ourselves in a, in a cycle that I think Tyler just perfectly described in his testimony, where we try and we try and we try, and either we, we accomplish what we set out to do or we fail. Of course, if we fail, we're crushed by it. But even if we accomplish it, it's still just leading to emptiness. And so that's why I've created this fancy little graphic. You saw it really quick a moment ago. This is my description of life apart from grace. We try hard. Two things can happen. We can accomplish or we can fail. Either way, it's going to lead to disappointment, disillusionment, and despair. And our only option is to try harder and stay in that cycle. So it's only the grace of Christ that breaks this cycle. It's only this message of absolute freedom. It's why Paul had so much strength and faith, so much confidence, you know, confronting the leader of the church, so much faith in his mission and church planting, so much persistence in prayer. It's because he had this absolute freedom that he had, he had gotten free from this vicious cycle of spiritual performance. And that's why he's, he's saying the basis of this is being crucified with Christ, you know? I mean, what can you do to a man who's already dead? You know, all the, the others, the, the Hebrew leaders, they criticized him, they blamed him, they stoned him. He got shipwrecked a few times, but you can't do anything to a man who's already dead. He's been crucified, it's happened, it's done. And that leads to the second thing, which is he is now alive in Christ. So verse 20 continues, I've been crucified with Christ, and now he says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, this is a deep personalization of the gospel. He's taking the truths of the gospel and he's, he's bringing it home. It doesn't minimize all the relational, relational and the, the social dynamics of the gospel. That's what we looked at last week. But he's affirming the personal and intimate way that Christ operates in our hearts. I've heard Tim Keller say before that 
Christianity is both radically objective and radically subjective. It's, it's objective in the, faith, in the sense that our, our faith is rooted in a, in a historical event, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's based on real people who walked on this earth. It's based on a, a system of beliefs that we get from the scriptures that we believe is inspired by God. It's radically objective, and yet it's radically subjective, meaning it's personal. It's, it's particular. Each of our, our experiences of it is a little bit different. It's Jesus calling us by name. It's the Father waiting for you on the porch. It's the Spirit giving you a, a totally unique set of gifts for the good of others. And so it's both incredibly objective. It's, it's as real as the sunrise. It's as sure as like the Chiefs beating the Chargers. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It just is. It's objective. And yet it's radically subjective. And Paul brings this together so much when he begins to say, it's no longer I that live. I mean, I've been objectively crucified with Christ, but now Christ lives in me. It's both objective and subjective. What Paul is talking about here, he's no longer talking about justification by faith. That was verse 16. He's now talking about a doctrine called union with Christ. Union with Christ is the reality that we are joined to Christ by faith, that we are in Christ. We are one with him. We're united with him. And that is a a permanent spiritual union. And this is all over the New Testament to the point to where we can say with confidence, as great as justification by faith is, and it is right at the heart of the gospel, it fits inside a greater theme of union with Christ. That's why the New Testament, Paul in particular, is constantly saying, you are in Christ. You have blessings in Christ. You are one with Christ. It's all to remind us that our life is hidden with Jesus. And what that means is that whatever is true of Christ is now true of you. If you are alive in him, everything that's true of Christ is true of you. And so think about it. Perfect in righteousness, clean and holy. That's Jesus, and that's you. Able to enter the presence of the Father without a second thought, that's Jesus, and that's you. Resurrected to a life of joy and power in the Holy Spirit, that's Jesus, and that's you. Heir to the entire kingdom of God with eternal riches, that's Jesus, and that's you. And so if you ask, can God stop loving you? The answer is only if he stops loving Christ. Can God reject you? The answer is only if he rejects Christ. Luther used to say, you are cemented to Christ. You are one with him. You are in him. And so how the father treats the son is how he treats us. And how he looks when he sees the son is how he looks when he sees us. All of Christ's perfect record, his righteousness, his goodness, That's what the father sees when he looks at you. And so often we can believe the grace of God in our our minds, but not live into it in our hearts. We all have a a great knowledge of the gospel here. And you can say, I know that I am saved by faith, not by my works, but only by my faith. And yet if we ask one another, how are you doing spiritually? We can say, well, not, not too well. I'm really struggling. My prayer life stinks. I think God's probably so disappointed with me. 
Our actual Christian life gets so disconnected from what we know to be true about the gospel. Because if you're in Christ, your spiritual life is Christ. Like your spiritual life is a 10 out of 10 in the sight of God. So yes, keep growing, keep pressing in, keep growing in your prayer life, but know that even your spiritual life is perfect because Christ is perfect. How quickly we can go from not by good works in the head to I'm not doing enough in our hearts. But grace breaks that cycle. Now, a critic might say, and and Paul had his critics. I mean, he's already anticipating this question and he responds to it. The critic says, if you give people freedom, they'll just abuse it. Like if God gives us total freedom, then, then we're just going to do all kinds of wild stuff and we're not going to live for him. But it's better to give people law, to give them you know, strict rules, tell them how to live exactly. And so Paul anticipates this question and he says, absolutely not. And the reason is because although fear and guilt is a pretty good motivator, the strongest motivation in the world is love. Now, what love produces is gratitude, thanksgiving, celebration. It brings about an actual change in our hearts that fear and guilt could never produce. We're actually living from love. We say, look at what God's done for me. No one has ever accepted me like this. No one has ever given themselves for me. Nobody's ever shown me unconditional love. How could I not live completely for that? Now, when we really experience God's grace, we live radically different. And I'll give you an example from history. A couple weeks ago, I told the story of the small study group that was at Oxford back in the 1700s. And out of this little study group, as they read Luther's commentary on Galatians, they, they came to life. And in that room were John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, And they went out and shared the gospel and they went out into the fields and tens of thousands of people gathered to hear their preaching, to respond in faith. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people came to faith within just a few years. And we call it the Great Awakening. What I didn't share, and I was reminded of this by a message by John Tyson, is that 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 small group at Oxford, it was actually put together by a group called the Moravians. And the Moravians were were the ones that actually came alongside these little students and, and cultivated them and opened up doors for them to share the gospel. They were the whole foundation for that movement in the beginning. And the Moravians are a really wild bunch historically. And it was just a few years before the Great Awakening in a little town in Germany called Hernhut, I mean, like middle of nowhere, super rural. There's one church in the town and it had maybe a couple hundred people. And so they're farmers, their mothers, their grandparents, their children. And it's out of this movement, what they did was they were experiencing a work of grace. It was August 1727. And this church decided that they were going to take turns praying for renewal. So just like we do a 24-hour prayer, they would take one-hour slots at the church and they decided to pray 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And this prayer meeting lasted over 100 years, continuously. And so not only did the Great Awakening come out of it, but there was a man, a young man named William Carey, who after a little bit of study, left home, left England, went all the way to India and spent 41 years sharing the gospel in India 
William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. More than 25 million people are Christian in India today. He's inspired hundreds of thousands of missionaries to go to the ends of the earth. But William Carey credited the Moravians with his faith, with his understanding of God's grace, with his prayer life, with his understanding of mission. Not only that, in the social sector, there was a man named William Wilberforce. We've talked about him before, a British legislator who spent his entire life fighting to end slavery. At the end of his life, when he accomplished it, slavery was wiped out across the whole Western world. And Wilberforce credited this little Moravian community in Hernhut, Germany. When they had this revival in Hernhut, they, they ended slavery on a local level. And it didn't lead to more division. It didn't lead to violence. It led to peace and harmony and flourishing. And so Wilberforce used the example of the Moravians to bring about the end of race-based slavery in the modern world. And so if you're keeping track at home from a small, ordinary church in the middle of nowhere with a radical commitment to the grace of God, in about 100 years comes the Great Awakening, the modern missions movement, and the end of race-based slavery. When we really experience God's grace, we live radically different. It's amazing what a, a small group of believers can do when they realize they're crucified with Christ and alive in him. But our passage actually ends with one more phrase, that we are loved by Christ. The verse finishes like this, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul is saying, in, in my body, in my everyday experience, in my eating and drinking and going to work and going to the grocery store, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's coming back again and again and again to the love of, of God poured out in Christ. He's saying this is how we know that God loves us, that he gave himself for us. Christ gave himself for us. He says the same thing in Romans 5, that God shows his love among us by sending his only son. See, Jesus' love became the motivation in life for Paul. The reality is we're all motivated by love. The question is, where are we going for it? You know, think about it when you have a moment of, of stillness or boredom, maybe a moment of, of discouragement and, and frustration. Where is it that your mind just quickly and naturally goes? Maybe you go to social media really quick, or maybe you go to your hobbies, or maybe you sort of hit eject and try to numb from the pain of whatever it is that's going on. Or maybe you double down and work harder and you try to accomplish and, and feed that, that desire for status. All of this is a, is a type of searching for love. Yeah, Paul's saying there is, there is love here. There is no greater love. You are completely and perfectly loved in Christ already, objectively true. But what about subjectively? I mean, how do we get this gospel truth from our minds into our hearts? It's one of the great challenges of the Christian life. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, it's one of my favorite prayers. I pray that you may have power, this, this mighty, 
otherworldly, raise Jesus from the dead kind of power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Saying, I pray that you would have all of this power just to understand how much Christ loves you. And it's like Jesus said in another context, this kind of work can only happen by prayer and fasting. We can get the gospel into our minds, but to get it into our hearts requires an an internalization, a personalizing. And that's exactly what Paul is doing for us in this passage. By prayer, he's, he's working it into his own heart in the same way that you, you work a new ingredient into the dough. If you're making bread or cookies, you can't just sprinkle it on top. You have, to, you have to press it and work it and stretch it to really get it in. And that's the same with the grace and love of God. The good news is that the, the pressure is off. You've been crucified with him. You're alive in him. And he loved you and gave his life for you. There's a British preacher, Alistair Begg, a real formal chap, like wears a suit and tie when he preaches. And he gave this beautiful description of the good news of God's grace. He said, without preaching the gospel to yourself, faith plus works returns as the grounds of our salvation. So to go to the old question, if you were to die tonight and wanting to gain entry into heaven, what would you say? If we answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, I believed, I have faith. The only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because of what he has done. He continues on, think about the thief on the cross. I can't wait to meet that fella. You were never in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet you made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said at the gates. How did you make it here? I don't know. Just a few questions for you. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? I never heard of it. And so he goes on and finally the angel is exasperated and says, on what basis are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. We have to remember where we came from. We are We are all the thief on the cross. We are all the the worker that showed up at the last hour, but got paid the same as everybody else. You remember the parable Jesus told about about the the king or the ruler that threw this huge banquet and he he sent his servants out to go get all of the noblemen and the, the great people in society to come, but they all had these reasons for why they couldn't come. So he sends the servants out a second time, like go to the commoners, the ordinary people, bring them in. So they come back and they say, Master, there's, there's still more room. And he says, go out into the country. Bring in the poor and the crippled and the lame, the outcasts, so that my feast may be full. And that's who we are. We're that third group. We're the outsiders, the, the nobodies who have been graciously invited into the feast of our Lord. And so how could anyone say, if I'm justified by faith, I'll I'll have no incentive to live for God. We look at his love. We look at his grace. We look at our Lord and his love stretched wide and long and high and deep on the cross. We see ourselves crucified there with him. 
And he says to us what he said to the thief today, not tomorrow, not in a million years when you're perfect and holy, but today you will be with me where I am. And it's that kind of life, crucified, risen, full of love, that can change our hearts and bless the world. Let's pray.